Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Tuesday, December 7, 2021. And today will be better than yesterday. Producing from his home studio in the foothills of Connecticut is Taylor Schwenk. I'm Buster only working for my home in New York. Uh, today is the birthday of my late great mom who was born the day that Pearl Harbor was attacked in 1941 at Taylor. My mom was not a sports fan, but she would absolutely appreciate how we are going to go after Tim Kirchin today and what could be a really fun day for him. I can't even imagine the wave of emotions Tim Kirchin has been riding along with, and I, I'm sure she would have absolutely loved, you know, she obviously fostered your love of baseball, even though not being a huge baseball fan, and, and your career as well, so I'm sure she'd be absolutely tickled by by uh, Tim's fascinating story and, and his rise to maybe a place in the hall of fame. I mean, how exciting is that? Well, and she really loves stories about really great people. And Tim is a great person. And and so today we're taping in the nine o'clock AM hour and the announcement of the baseball writers election for the Spink award uh, given to a baseball writer annually is imminent. And I know Tim well enough to know that he won't want to talk about it, (laughs) but of course we're going to talk about it. I think we, we brought him on it with false pretenses. I didn't tell him that I was going to just run a question, a long list of questions by him about being in this situation. Uh, but that uh, that's what we're going to do. Uh, real quick, some news and notes as we get going. The labor situation, there's no change. Uh, the Mets have formally asked for permission to interview Matt Cotraro and Joe Espada and Don Kelly for the managerial vacancies. They've already interviewed Brad Osmus, and they will be talking with Buck Showalter. Uh, Buck O'Neill, champion of black ball players during a monumental eight-decade career on and off the field, joined Gil Hodges, Minnie Minoso, and three others in being elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame on Sunday. Former Twins out their teammates Tony Oliva and Jim Cott were also chosen along with Bud Fowler by a pair of special committees. We're going to be talking with Jim Cott coming up here. Uh, he's been on the show a few times. He's got a lot of stories to tell, and I'm going to ask him about all the Hall of Famers. And I might squeeze in a question to him about our good friend, Tim Kirchin. Baseball tonight is fueled by Gatorade. Gatorade's proven formula. Whatever path you take, greatness starts with G. First pitch is part of ESPN Nation, brought to you by Dr. Pepper. College football is back. So are the fans. Return to glory with Fansville by Dr. Pepper. The one fans deserve. Taylor, what do you got? Well, sir, a couple things. First of all, NBA Today is every day, every weekday, that is, on ESPN, 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific. You can watch it on the ESPN app, or you can listen to it in podcast format wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. And don't miss SV Pod. A lot of college football, a lot of NFL talk to be had over there with Scott Van Pelt and Stanford Steve. I'm sure they'll have a couple dad conversations this week. We're recording that episode tonight. Tuesday and maybe a little Maryland head coaching talk with the uh, the basketball team. I would love that. I think we'll at least uh, dip a toe in there. So check out SV Pod wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. We're driven by the search for better. When it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Buster. Just go to Indeed.com slash Buster right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Buster. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, the clutch hits, the strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems, with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, 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 with nothing on your roof. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. This is The Numbers Game with Sarah Langs. Sarah Langs, reporter and producer for MLB.com. Sarah, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Buster. Thanks so much for having me. Yep, great to talk with you again. Uh, we get the announcement the other day about the players who got voted into the Hall of Fame by these special committees. And sometime today, we're expecting to hear about Tim Kirkchin, who is one of three nominees for the Spink Award given out by the baseball or voted upon by the baseball writers. And that person will make a speech to the Hall of Fame. I, I do think there's a high chance that Tim gets in today. And I, as Taylor and I were talking about structuring this podcast today, our conversation was, you know what? We got to get Tim while he's waiting because he's going to have so much emotion. You worked with Tim. Uh, tell me what that was like. Oh, my gosh. I mean, Tim is the Hall of Famer, no matter whether there is a plaque, a name, anything in Cooperstown. I think we all know that. And I'm just thinking of the signature Tim Kirkton stress, which I'm sure is in this uh, segment that precedes me. And I can't even imagine him. I'm imagining him in his very puffy zip up sweatshirt that he always wears to stay warm because he's always cold, pacing around in that house, just waiting for this answer. But an absolute Hall of Famer, wonderful person, wonderful reporter, as you know, and so much fun to watch on TV and hear here on the podcast. So I have my fingers crossed for him as well. I have a little bit of that stress for him, too, just because I want good news for Tim always. Oh, absolutely. Um, all right. So I'm going to throw some names at you from the Hall of Fame process the other day uh, and then uh, pass on some thoughts. Uh, Jim Cott, who we're going to speak to later in the podcast. Oh, my gosh. I mean, first of all, I just want to say I was so thrilled for all six individuals. I mean, it's just such a ray of great news that is wonderful to see. And, you know, I think that with these, you know, uh, 
uh, era committees that we get, there's always the sad part that these individuals had to wait for so long. But I think you see the joy from the families or from the individuals when they are still alive at waiting so long and finally getting that news. So I, I do just want to point that out to start. But Jim Cott, you know, when I really started getting into baseball researching and, you know, learning more and more about the history of the game, the thing that stands out to me with him is the gold gloves, is that defense. And he won 16 gold gloves, which is the second most of any pitcher behind only Jim Cott, uh, by behind only Greg Maddox, excuse me, um, and tied for the second most for anyone at any position. The only other individual with 16 gold gloves is Brooks Robinson and you know, when you think of a certain era, I really think of Jim Cott. I mean, a lot of the players who were up for election on this ballot are really the players that my parents grew up watching. So it's amazing to me because so many of them are so mythologized in my mind. And he is absolutely on that list for that reason. I remember a conversation with him about starting game seven of the 1965 World Series against Sandy Koufax. Like Sandy Koufax coming back and starting on two days rest and Jim seeing Sandy Koufax warm up and man, uh, what uh, what a career he had. Tony Oliva, his teammates going to be going in with him, which I was excited about to, to hear that Jim and Tony could uh, be inducted in the same year. Yeah, I absolutely love that. I mean, Tony Oliva is actually one of those players who was on the list of individuals who, when I was 10 years old, I just kind of figured were in the Hall of Fame. Again, sort of based on those stories I'd heard, based on when my father would talk about him. And you're talking about a guy who was a rookie of the year to start his career and, you know, never added another BBWA uh, award to go along with it, but so many all-star appearances and just such consistency. I mean, you look at his baseball record reference page and just so consistent across the board hit 304 for his career. So, you know, that he was always right around there again, also with a gold glove, but you know, the batting titles, everything else and being able to live up to the rookie of the year award is not the easiest thing in the world. You know, I did some research, uh, I think during the pandemic last year about how each award translates to getting into the hall of fame and just winning rookie of the year is of course the least reflective because so many people win rookie of the year and aren't able to follow up on that and continue that for their career. So to finally get to that moment is really, really impressive given how many individuals have won that and, you know, not even petered out, you know, have petered out after three or four seasons. So. Uh, How about Gil Hodges? Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, I think that Gil Hodges you know, he was elected here as a player, but I had a conversation on MLB Network on MLB Now at some point in the last year about how, you know, maybe there should be a category for almost like a baseball life. You know, right now we induct people for players, executives, and then there are those, uh, you know, like Bud Fowler, people who were pillars of the early game. But I really think the lot of Gil Hodges and all of the argument for him, and of course he got in, really has to do with the entire baseball life. You know, this isn't considering the managerial side. It isn't considering all of that. But I think when you look at him, you see someone who was such a part of the game for so long across the board and in different roles, but obviously multi-time all-star, the World Series, everything else. And I heard this incredible story from his son on SNY the other day about his connection with Jackie Robinson, of course, being a teammate and knowing him. But, you know, I don't think 
that, you know, you don't necessarily assume that every player uh, right off the bat was just friends with everybody, especially in those days. But it was a story from uh, Gil Hodges' funeral that Gil Hodges Jr. was sitting there in a pew in the church. And I believe Howard Cosell taps him on the shoulder and says, hey, there's someone out here who wants to talk to you. And he brings him around the corner. There's a car and rolls down the window and it's Jackie Robinson there and he's crying his eyes out. And I was on this show on SNY. It was a segment I was not part of. They were interviewing Gil Hodges Jr. And I was just sitting there in my apartment with my mouth agape. I had no idea that kind of connection. I thought that was absolutely incredible. And again, for me, that gets to almost the baseball life even more than just the statistics or anything else. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Uh, a player who was not voted in was Dick Allen. Uh, and there's uh, some frustration being expressed by his family over that. Uh, what do you think about his candidacy? Yeah, I mean, I really was expecting him to get in, you know, and he's another player. Again, this is all my parents are. And this is another one who, when I was younger, I just figured what's in the Hall of Fame based on everything that I had heard. And to fall one vote short, I mean, I know it's a smaller ballot and it's a different kind of setup, but there's something so harrowing about that. And I know that towards the end of his career and towards the end of his life, he was uh, not really in on the concept of the Hall of fame. I know that that's been uh, well-documented and I think his family expressing their frustration, you know, was carrying along on that, on that sort of family tradition. And, you know, obviously institution is hard to blame. It's, it's so much more complicated than that, but just what an important, important player, I think, and a really, really great player across the board in an era where, you know, there wasn't necessarily, um, another player like him or a standout in his way. So uh, I really hope that, you know, again, I mentioned that research I did and if you win rookie of the year and then you follow it up with another BBWA award, most of those individuals do end up getting in. And he did do that with rookie of the year and MVP. So I am hopeful that next time around he does get in, but, you know, obviously it loses luster each time that you have to be on a ballot like this. Uh, before you go, I want to see if you want to co-sign my effort from the podcast, the person who's not in the Hall of Fame that I would like to most see in the Hall of Fame, uh, be honored at the Hall of Fame. And let's set some uh, you know players aside and the whole steroid question aside. Uh, Jana Marie Smith, I think it's gotten to the point with her that we need to understand the impact that she had on fan experience in ballparks uh, around the I don't think anybody has shaped Fan experience in ballparks more than Janet Marie Smith, who was involved in the uh, the work to build Camden Yards and later, you know, helped to redesign Fenway Park, has done the same at Dodger Stadium. That to me is at this point, it's becoming an omission. What do you think? Absolutely. I mean, first of all, I'm all on board for any more women in the Hall of Fame just to start with. But absolutely. I mean, Camden Yards is always referred to as sort of the first of our current most modern era of ballparks. You know, I can remember being told that when I was younger and learning that more and more as I learned more about the ballparks that were built sort of in the 90s and onward. And, uh, you know, a really important figure in that. I mean, ballparks, the physical places are so important to fan experience. 
experience and to how the sport is consumed. I mean, I think we saw that sort of in omission when there were no fans in the ballpark in 2020. And I think in 2021, there was such an increased appreciation for the physical ballparks and people being able to be there, all of that with the fan experience. So I would love to see that. And again, I think that those individuals who shape the game, even if they weren't physically on the field are really, really important. All right, Sarah. Always great to talk with you. Thanks for doing this. Thanks so much for having me, Buster. Seam heads rejoice. This is Timmy time. Baseball is the greatest game. With Tim Kirkson. It never disappoints you. On Baseball Tonight. Tim Kirkson covers baseball for ESPN. He's been covering baseball for a long time. And as you and I talked, Tim, at uh, 9 a.m., December 7th, 2021, are we not awaiting some word about your situation with the Spink Award where you could wind up making a speech in Cooperstown next summer? Yeah, I I haven't been able to breathe for about a week here, Buster. I'm not overstating that. This is to be nominated for this award is the highlight of my professional career. And if I win, I'm not even sure what I'm going to do. I'm going to have to go to a place by myself for a little while because that's I don't want to be corny about this, but this is what I always wanted to do was to be a baseball writer. And the way my dad taught us his three boys to love and have a feel for the game from a very early age. um, This is really important to be around the game and be right about the game. And I've been doing that for over four decades and I hope to get to do it even more. And if I, anything good happens today, that'd be great. But I am so honored just to be nominated. So tell me about that weight. You, you referenced it, that it, uh, it's, you know, <laughs> it probably, I mean, get a, I'm sort of a, a range of emotions about it. Yeah, I'm, I've had a little trouble sleeping lately. I must say, I wake up in the middle of the night a lot. A lot of tossing and turning, got up at five this morning just because I couldn't sleep anymore. I know that's what time you get up every morning, but um, it's been it's been great. And I've I've heard from some people who are previous award winners. Dan Shaughnessy, Jason Stark called me yesterday to wish me luck and we'll see where this goes. Um, I I just hope uh well, I'm just so honored, so thrilled to be nominated by the baseball writers. And to repeat, this is I love the game so much and writing about it is my favorite part of the job. OK, so tell me uh, when you're in your situation, do you get any kind of, uh, you know, a week ago, all the nominees get a, a heads up call and say, hey, you know, you might want to be have your phone or where are you going to be with your phone at, uh, you know, let's say I'm just pulling in you know, and something out of the air, 10 a.m., 11 a.m. Yeah, no one's called me to tell me to be ready for anything. So that means I'm going to be ready for anything. I'll have my phone charged, but I always have my phone charged. It goes with me wherever I go, just like every other writer, baseball writer in the world. So uh Hopefully I'll get a call this morning. If I don't, we'll move on and I'll be thrilled for either Marty Noble or Alan Simpson, but um, uh, I'll be, I'll be ready for whatever happens this morning. I'm really excited for you, Tim, as a longtime colleague and friend. Well, thank you, Buster. I really appreciate it. And your support over the last six months has really meant a lot to me. I really appreciate it. So tell me about your favorite story you ever did. Some a story that was meaningful to you during the course of your career, and and you know, and not 
And this is not a question of, you know, what was your favorite game to cover? Who was the most interesting player? It was a story that had special meaning for you. Um, well, when the, um, when the Nationals won the World Series, uh, I wasn't rooting for the Nationals. We don't do that. Nobody does that in our business. Otherwise, you're not in our business. But I got to kind of go back and look at, you know, the Nationals and Walter Johnson. And I've told you one million times I went to Walter Johnson High School. So it was kind of cool to go back and think about, you know, where the Nationals came from, how Walter Johnson was the greatest pitcher ever and the greatest player in the history of the franchise and probably the greatest player in the history of Washington, D.C. sports. And uh, I can't believe I didn't figure this out until this story I wrote a couple years ago was that Walter Johnson died on December 10th, 1946. And I was born on December 10th, 1956. So here I have all these wonderful connections to Walter Johnson, Walter Johnson High School, Shirley Povich, all these things. And then I realized just two years ago, he was he died the same day I was born, exactly 10 years later. And maybe that's kind of maudlin, but I don't think so. It just means that I'm so proud of the high school I went to. And I just think there's a little destiny involved that I've made a career in baseball and went to a high school named after the greatest pitcher of all time. So today is the anniversary of uh, my mom. It's her birthday. She was born December 7th, 1941, the day that Pearl Harbor was attacked. Oh, my God. And, you know, she was she uh, passed away in 2006. She was absolutely awesome. And I told you this story before that a few months before she passed away was the first year that Mark McGuire was on the Hall of Fame ballot. I voted for him and she yelled at me and she was like, what are you doing? You know, which is great. She wasn't even really that much of a baseball fan, but she was thinking about it in terms of principle. Tell me a, a story that you did that you got a strong reaction. Great or otherwise from your dad? Uh, well, my dad followed my career pretty closely, but um, I, I had a little chat with him after the worst mistake I ever made in the newspaper business. I was covering the Rangers in 83, and Larry Parrish, the right fielder, missed a game in Minneapolis one night. And I went to Doug Rader and says, said, where's LP? And he goes, well, his wife had a baby, so he's going to miss the game tonight. He'll be back tomorrow. So I said, well, boy or girl? He goes, it's a boy. I said, well, I need to put this in the paper to alert people. Hey, congratulations, Larry Parrish. What's the boy's name? And he said, Buford. So I said, come on, no, nobody names their son Buford. So I push him on it and he says, look, the boy's name is Buford. So I put it in the paper that Larry Parrish missed the game yesterday because his wife had a baby and the baby's name is Buford. So the next day, Larry Parrish shows up at the Metrodome, walks right up to me and says, Tim, the boy's name ain't Buford. So as it turns out, his name was Joshua. He went by J.P. Parrish and the interesting part is that whenever he got in trouble as like a teenager, which wasn't very often, his parents would yell at him and call him Buford, like Buford, we told you not to do that. So I finally went to Doug Rader, the mischievous manager and said, how could you do that to me? How could you tell me his name was Buford when that wasn't his real name? And he goes, I can't believe you 
you listen to me. I can't believe you believe me. Ah, so I had a little chat with my dad about that. And even though he had a little chuckle at my expense, he said, Tim, you better be a little more careful the next time. So that's th- those are words to, to live by as a baseball writer. You better be careful the next time. Yeah, you're you're 100 percent right. Um, all right. Let's move on to other things. I know you love talking about yourself so much. So maybe I'll, I'll just relieve you of that burden. Thank, thank you, please. <laughs> uh, just to check in on this, anything different labor stuff, because all I hear is pessimism. Yeah, I talked to somebody yesterday who told me the hatred between the two sides is legitimate. I always thought, well, it's a disconnect. There's some there's some issues, but this is not the hate that I saw in 81 or even 94, 95. And I had a guy tell me yesterday, this is the worst it's ever been. Now, I don't know if that's true. If it is indeed true, that that worries me more than anything because now it seems to be personal and there, there are certain guys in the, in the, who are trying to make, you know, make it about them. I'm just really worried about where this is going. And I had a friend tell me yesterday, guy kind of involved that February 23rd is the date that he's looking at that maybe we can get this settled February 23rd. I mean, I've got February 1st that we better start going to, to salvage spring training. He thinks February 23rd is enough time to salvage April the 1st. I think February 23rd is way too late, but that's what I heard yesterday, and that did not make me happy. No, then I you don't want to hear from me then, because I, I don't think February 23rd is a real deadline. I don't think a real deadline is until like 10th of March. Um, you know, where I'm, I'm talking about and, and something I heard in recent days, it probably concerns me more than any because, you you know, and I know that in the history of these issues, there are tons of stories of when they get in negotiations, uh, star player, a Johnny Bench, uh, you know, in his time, a David Cohn, a Tom Glavin, they would be involved in these conversations and they would speak. Right. Um, I heard in that meeting last week that Andrew Miller, who was representing the players, uh, and you know, you know, I know him well, that he never said a word. And that concerns me. It, it really does. It feels like it's out of it's a process that is in the hands of, of the very top of the food chain. And I think that if there's going to be a resolution, Tim, that other people are going to have to get involved. And I just don't know where that's coming from. Right. I did a a Zoom chat the other day for the University of Maryland and David Cohn was on it and he was great talking mostly about Kurt Flood, that Kurt Flood, who had a big hand in all of this happening, free agency and independence, all that. He said Kurt Flood came in and spoke to us and he said, you could have heard a pin drop in that room. We hung on every single word he said. And among other things, he said, don't let them put the genie back in the bottle. That meant so much to those players that someone who had come before them had come to give advice. And I'm with you, Buster. I would get the key guys from 2002 or the guys who were there, 94, 95, to say, look, this is a different set of circumstances, but we've lived through this. I think it would do the players an enormous amount of good if someone, Tom Glavin, David Cohn, someone of that ilk would show up and speak to them. Granted, it's not Kurt Flood, but it's pretty darn impressive what David Cohn went through, what Tom Glavin and others went through. 
I hope they I hope they are asked to speak because I think it's important. Yep. Couldn't couldn't agree with you more. And, and I don't as I've been saying throughout this entire process, I don't see what it hurts to actually talk and have conversations. And I think there's only an upside, only potentially the more people you get involved, potentially, the more that you could potentially hear ideas and, uh, you know, interesting threads that uh, that might be usable. All right. Uh, before you go, in a few minutes, we're going to be talking with Mr. Jim Cott uh, about his uh, Hall of Fame election the other day. Tell me what jumped out of you among those uh, picked by this uh, by the uh, special committees, whether it's an anecdote, a story uh, about uh, one or two or whatever you want to say. Well, it was a great day for baseball because look at the character of the people involved, all high character people. Tony Oliva, one of the one of the best hitters I've ever seen. And I saw him in his prime is a wonderful man. Of course, Buck O'Neill did more for Negro League Baseball than anyone. Bud Fowler was the first professional black baseball player. His his story is enormously important. Minnie Minoso, of course, where he came from, how long he played, how great a player he was. Gil Hodges, who is as good a man as you'll ever meet and a tremendous player. Um, and Jim Cott, of course, is one of our favorite people in the world. I mean, Jim Cott is in his 80s now. And Buster, I don't think you're a golfer, so I'm not sure this resonates as much with you. But anyone who plays a lot of golf will appreciate Jim Cott shot his age, which is virtually impossible to do. But in one week, he shot his age playing golf left handed. And the same week, he shot his age playing right-handed. That wow. is remarkable. And what that speaks to, of course, is his unbelievable athleticism to pitch as long as he did 16 gold gloves and to be the all round player pitcher that he was just speaks to um, how great a player he was. 283 wins. I'm so happy he got in because another really good person joins the hall of fame. And that makes me really happy. Yeah. And I always have enjoyed, um, you know, listening to his broadcast because I always learn something. And I, and I, you know, when uh, we would have uh, ex players join uh, us at ESPN and they would ask for advice. And I'm sure you had similar conversations with guys. Uh, they would, you know, how do you deal with this? And, and one of their big concerns was, criticizing players, other players, their guys who were their peers for a lot of years. And I said, you know what? Uh, watch a Yankee broadcast at that time, uh, Jim Cott, and listen to him in the way that he breaks down a game because he will criticize players directly for uh, things that they do on the field. But it's done so well and with so much respect and empathy and appreciation for the difficulty of what they're doing. I, I To me, it separated him. And, and it was no wonder he was a pitching coach first because that that's his personality. Right. I love listening to Jim Cott on the air. I always have and I always will. And but I like him even more in person because yeah. you could talk to him about anything. And by the way, the golf story, Buster, he didn't tell me that. I heard it from somewhere else and I confirmed it with him. I said, Jim, this is impossible. Did this happen? And grudgingly, he said, yes, that happened. So he wasn't out there to tell me this. I had to ask him like a reporter would ask him. But that's who Jim Cott is. And our young players especially can learn a lot from a fellow like him. 
So how cool would that be to be hanging out on the veranda at the Otis Saga in Cooperstown next summer with uh, Jim Codd? Buster, I'm, uh, this is way too big for me. I'm totally overwhelmed by just being nominated. I, I can't even think straight these days. The last few days have been wonderfully nervous, but um, I can't even imagine sharing anything with Jim Codd or Tony Oliva or Gil Hodges. Oh my God. It's, it's overwhelming for me. And I, I hope you stop talking about this now. <laughs> okay. I'll let you go. <laughs> uh, we will uh, be, we will be following Tim. Thank you, Buster. I appreciate it. I really appreciate your support. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority especially against nasty parasites. That's why you gotta check out NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NexGuard Plus chews provide one and done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. They're the one and done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. Jim Cott was just voted uh, into the National Baseball Hall of Fame by a special committee the other day. Jim, I was so excited when I got word of this, uh, along with everybody else the other day. What was it like for you to get word? Well, Buster, it's probably the most excruciatingly, if that's the right word, uncomfortable day. Uh, Because uh, the ground rules are they call you early in the week and say, be prepared. If you get a call, it'll be between 5.15, 5.45. We don't call you with bad news. So if that time lapses, which I've been through twice before, 2011 and 2014 or 15, uh, then you know, well, I didn't get in. And uh, so about 20 minutes, on, I, I spent Sunday afternoon with my headphones on, list, you know, watching golf, football, listening. I even listened to all the commercials, which I sell them to. I usually flip around and uh, just putting, you know, wasting the time away. And then uh, I think it was a little past 530. And I thought, well, it's uh, same old thing. And then I looked at the phone, which was ringing. And it was area 917, which I would think would be in New York City cell phone. It's not the Cooperstown area code. And I pick up the phone and she said, hi, this is Jane Clark, which that's all she had to say. (laughs) And I knew (laughs) what the call was about. And it's, you know, I've been asked many times, uh, you know, what it would mean or what would your reaction be? And you never really know until it happens. And then it's such an emotional time, you know, the different thoughts flooding through your mind. Like my dad went to the hall of fame in 1947 to 
see the induction of Lefty Grove. So it's been an unbelievable, uh, uh, you know, almost two days now with the uh, reaction from friends and former teammates and stuff. And uh, it's a life changer, no doubt about it. So tell me what was what were some of those floods of emotion and, and thoughts that you had and, and people who popped up in your head. You you mentioned your dad uh, going to the well, induction I, I in 1947. The, uh, yeah, I, th- I think the big thing was that I never really thought uh, I kind of had the Hall of Fame number in my rearview mirror. Um, I played golf with Mike Schmidt last spring and somebody, you know, they always bring it up. You know, why aren't you in the Hall of Fame or you think you'll ever get in and. And I would always say, well, you know, I kind of have the Hall of Fame in my rearview mirror. I really don't think it's going to happen. And then Schmidt, said, well, I'm going to be on the committee uh, next this coming year. And he said, I'm certainly going to speak up for you. So, um, uh, you know, I I think what what really overwhelmed me was I had kind of put this moment away for good. And then all of a sudden it happened when I least expected it time-wise. Now, I knew when I looked at the committee that I said, well, I'm going to get the fairest hearing I'll ever get because I had guys there that I played with and against and executives that really saw me. Some years, you know, there's people on that committee that never saw you play, don't know anything about you. So uh, that's that's what really overwhelmed me is that uh, I never thought it would happen and then here it happened. And Jim, I got to tell you, I was so excited. Uh, I don't, I was never around uh, you and Tony Oliva together, but it was one of the things that I, I had so much fun with the other day was to think of you two who know each other well, uh, being in the same Hall of Fame induction ceremony. But tell me what your, your reaction was when you heard about that. Yeah, one of the questions I asked, and of course, Jane Clark, she, I said, can can you tell me who else is going in? Because I was really hoping for Tony and Dick Allen. And she said, well, I'm not allowed to say that now. We keep it quiet till the MLB show goes on. So, uh, you know, I was disappointed. I had a nice talk with Willa Allen uh, yesterday morning. I was sorry that Dick missed by a vote. But then when I heard about Tony, you know, that is so exciting for us uh, that we're original twins and of course, the twins are excited about it, all the activities that they'll plan for the two of us. But having seen Tony in his early days, and, and uh, we've always said, and Rod Carew and Harmon realize this too, Rod's in the Hall of Fame. He should be. He got seven batting titles. Harmon, 573 home runs. He's in the Hall of Fame and should be. But if you ask catchers back in the 60s who the guy they feared coming up with men on base, it was always Tony Oliva won a batting title his first two years, only man to do that. And I think what will make uh, Tony, and I know it will, he's more proud of winning a gold glove uh, a few years later because when I was in the instructional league with him in the early 60s, manager Del Wilbur would hit fungal bats, fly balls, and Tony literally would miss the ball. He wouldn't even get a glove on it because he just wasn't accustomed to catching fly balls growing up in Cuba. And then three years later, he wins a gold glove. So I'm thrilled for Tony. Uh, Give me a memory about Gil Hodges. Well, you know, I remember Gil more as a manager, but as far as as a player, I just remember in the late 50s, because I've been involved in following baseball and as a fan since – the forties, you know, my dad drove to Cooperstown in 47 to see Lefty Grove's induction. And, uh, 
I remember that Gil was going through those tough times. He had priests in Brooklyn praying for him because he couldn't, he couldn't pick up the outside pitch. There was something about his eyesight. I think. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, I just remember all the years now with so many people, uh, you know, pulling for him to get in. And uh, I remember Gil Moore as a, as a manager, just a quiet, soft-spoken guy. As far as as a player, I just remember him by having his bubble gum card with all of his stats on the back and he's probably stuck in my bicycle spokes. <laughs> uh, Buck O'Neill, you have a memory of him? Oh, yeah. Buck, whenever I do a game in Kansas City, uh, in the press room there, Buck O'Neill would always be sitting at the corner table, and I would ask him if he minded if I sat down, and he would regale me of uh, stories about the Negro Leagues because as a kid growing up in Michigan, uh, every holiday, well, in the summer, uh, Memorial Day and Labor Day, uh, the town team played a doubleheader against the Grand Rapids Black Sox and Jess Elster's Colored Athletics in Michigan. And so I remember, and then as I became a teenager, I actually pitched against those guys. I was bat boy in my younger days. And so I knew all about Ted Raspberry, the promoter, and, and uh, you know, Buck, always uh, such a happy-go-lucky guy. And I'm, I'm thrilled to, to see that he's uh, getting in. He got the Lifetime Achievement Award, but he's done more for Negro League Baseball, and I've been through that museum in Kansas City a couple times, so uh, I'm happy that he's uh, he's going in. Minnie Minoso. Oh, Minnie I faced when he uh, came up, and of course, uh, Tony has a lot of stories because Minnie coming out of Cuba, uh, you know, was the revered star coming out. You know, Minnie stood right on top of the plate. He always had a big smile on his face, and uh, you know, he, he wasn't getting a lot of support until I think they kind of included him with the Negro Leagues stars as well as just playing in the major leagues. So uh, in those days, he stood out because he was so colorful and, you know, uh, used his emotions on the field, which we see a lot of today, but we didn't see it a lot in those days. But he was very expressive with the way uh, – he played the game, but I remember him mostly, you know, pitching because he stood right on top of the plate. I don't know if he has the record, but I think he got hit by pitches an awful lot of times. Oh yeah, uh, for sure. The stories that uh, come out when, when guys are, uh, you know, together in Cooperstown and they have conversations are some of my, uh, you know, favorite things to try to mine from, from hall of famers. Um, and when guys are voted in and selected uh, to be in the Hall of Fame, I always like to ask the question, who are you looking forward to hanging out at the Otisaga with, uh, you know, having dinner with, having a drink with on that back porch? Well, there'll be a lot of guys because, you know, even though this is an induction year for me, which I'm, you know, so happy about and grateful for. Uh, I've been to the Hall of Fame inductions many times. I went to Harmon's in 1984 when he went in with Louis Aparicio and and uh, Drysdale. Uh, I think there was another uh, major leaguer. I think there was a, a class of five or six, including the old timers. Then. And then my first one was seeing Williams and Stengel in 1966 when we played the Hall of Fame game. And then I've been there for 
you know, Harry Callis and Richie Ashburn as broadcasters and Schmitty and Bruce Suter and Bert. So I've been there many times. And, you know, the, the guys that I enjoyed sitting in those rocking chairs uh, on the on the Otisaga porch are not around anymore. And that was like Warren Spahn, Robin Roberts, Whitey Ford, Bob Feller, you know, and, and talking pitching. Uh, so I'll miss that. But, you know, I got a call from Goose last night, Goose Gossage and Bruce and uh, so the more current players of my era, I don't have any uh, special guys that I want to see like I did when I when I saw the three legends that I mentioned. But it's good to see all of them there. I'll see every guy I see, I'm sure, will be a fellow that I played against or or with in uh, in the years I played. So about six years ago, I checked out of the Hall of Fame voting process because I just didn't like the feel from it from a. You know, from a perspective of as a journalist covering the sport, I didn't like the way that it felt like the rules were being bent, you know, aimed at a specific some specific players. And I got to say, Jim, that over the years, I got really uncomfortable with the idea that uh, players would come up time after time after time. And I you know, one of the players, I think at the foremost of that was Jack Morris. Uh, that every year there would be this debate between the stats community and then other writers where it would be the question of whether or not Jack Morris was worthy uh, in his accomplishments as a player. And I hated the idea that someone could be sitting in retirement, uh, you know, as a player like Jack or like yourself. Uh, Jim Rice went through this for an extended period of time. And every year have this question, which inherently felt like it diminished their accomplishments, uh, which I just couldn't stand. And so my question to you is, as someone who went through this, if uh, the Hall of Fame were to ask you your opinion, look, what do you think of the voting process? What would you say? Well, it's it's different every year, Buster, because the committee's different. I mean, I was so fortunate this year. I've always said, you know, very simply, you you need the right 12 people there to speak up for you and convince the non-playing people. I, I think the fact that I have been uh, voted in is going to uh, bode well for Tommy John, which I texted TJ, and I said, really, you deserve to be in before I do. And so this certainly should cement his case, as as it will Dick Allen's. But in Jack Morris's case, I remember I had a writer say to me, and we were discussing whether he should be in, and he said, well, you know, he's going to have the highest ERA of any starter in the hall of fame. And I said, well, think about what you said. Somebody that is voted into the hall of fame as a starter will have the highest ERA in the hall of fame. (laughs) I said, I said, what Jack Morris did was he was the best pitcher in the eighties in the league. He didn't care if he won six to one or six to four. Uh, you know, stats uh, were not that important, and it was wins that were important, and that's kind of what they held against him. So, uh, I don't know. You have you have uh, people like now. Steve Hurt has been on the committee year after year, and there's a guy who knows the inside stats that uh, are able to show the committee uh, how to compare what this guy did versus other Hall of Famers, and. Uh, that's, I think, what they need to do. I mean, in my own case, it was always, well, you know, he played so long to accomplish what he played. And I've heard uh, one comment, well, 
283 wins, but uh, took them 25 years to do it. And they don't look into whether you pitched as a reliever for a number of years, things like that. So you need people like that on the committee to be able to say, wait a minute, let's look at the how this guy's numbers compare to uh, the guys that are in the Hall of Fame. Uh, you know, I had a nice chat with Willa Allen, uh, Dick's widow, and, you know, you can vote for four out of ten. So the other thing that comes up now, the five of us, four that are in, and Dick got the majority of the votes, but Dick got missed by a vote strictly because uh, Tony and I had a lot of support there from the Minnesota contingent and uh, probably the, uh, you know, whether the American League contingent, I don't know. But Dick just happened to get left off by by one vote. And uh, I certainly think the next you know, the next committee meeting, unfortunately, is going to be five years now. Uh, that's another thing that I think, why why isn't there a process in place where guys can find out sooner? I mean, I haven't thrown a pitch since I threw the last pitch to Marvell Wynn in July of 1983. That was my last pitch in the big league. So uh, my stats haven't changed. So I wish there was a process that they could. You know, I'd love to be able to have... Uh, my parents there, but this, this just doesn't happen. And when you're 83 years old. So I think those are some of the things that uh, I wish you, I wish they would change. Yeah. I never understood. And part of the reason why I dropped off and I stopped voting is that I couldn't stand the rule of 10. You had all the steroid era candidates that were backed up like planes on a runway. And I hated the fact, the reason why I stopped literally was because the last ballot I turned in uh, I did not vote for Mike Messina, who I thought was a Hall of Famer. I did not vote for Jeff Ken, who I thought is a Hall of Famer. And I did not vote for Kurt Schilling, who I think was a Hall of Famer. And it wasn't because of their careers or what they accomplished. The reason why I left them off was because of this ballot log jam. And to hear you describe about, you know, Dick Allen, I, I just like the question is whether or not, you know, any player is a Hall of Famer, you know, yeah. and let the players accomplishments in the sports speak for themselves as opposed to how they fit into that particular puzzle. You know what I mean? That's the part that bothers me. I feel like that it's, you should respect each individual player and they should be given their careers looked at uh, on its merits and not how it all fits in. Does that make sense? Oh, it definitely does. I mean, this year, if they didn't have the vote for four rule, I mean, Dick would have been in easily. And, uh, uh, in fact, you know, some some years, uh, like right now, we'll say Tommy John, he's in an era from 70 to, uh, I think, 90, 89 or something. I was in 60 to uh, uh, 50 to 69. Well, my most my career was really split half and half, as is TJ's. And uh, Dick Allen's is uh, in a way just as well. I mean, he was in the era with me and yet. Uh, uh, you know, in 72, he won the MVP 75, you know, he, he was dominant for a lot of years and they, they slot you into these different eras. And I, I agree with you. If you didn't have the four vote, uh, maximum, uh, Dick would have easily been in based on his career. So like you're saying, well, if he's a hall of famer, then why let the voting process punish him? Yeah. And I there's something that I've always just felt, you know, so bad for the candidates that they have to wait through that as opposed to just, uh, 
you know, getting an answer, as you say, you know, potentially to have family members there. All right, Jim, uh, thanks so much. Congratulations. I was so happy the other day when we got word for you. Buster, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Always good visiting with you. Bleacher Tweets. All righty, Buster. Bleacher Tweets for a Tuesday. First up is Michael Preston at McP1979. Michael writes in, who do you think will end up better off in the long run? The teams who spent money before the lockout or the teams who waited for the new CBA hoping to take advantage of the new landscape? Okay, I'm going to do a weaselly thing here. I'm, I'm going to answer your question by saying both. Like, I, I totally get why the Mets were hyper-aggressive because they're trying to win. Steve Cohen's made that clear. He's trying to win. And I think spending the way that he did was really smart. But I also think that if you're the Dodgers or you're the Red Sox or you're the Yankees or you're the Giants, that when the, the lockout ends, because the nature of this, and I'm not saying I want the middle-class players to get gouged, but the fact is the prices are going to drop a lot on those guys. And I understand why those teams wanted to wait until see what they see what the rules are. So I feel like that, uh, that you know, folks who handle it on both ends will wind up doing, I mean, who's going to argue with the Texas Rangers, um, you know, generating a lot of fan interest by si- signing those two middle infielders. Joe Eli at Joe 618 is up next. Joe writes in Buster. Is there someone with credibility who could quietly bring players and owners together mm-hmm. with creative ideas to get a conversation going? Joe, I've thought about this question a lot. And the answer that I've come up with is no, I can't think of anybody who I think could be that person to pull them together. I thought that when Chris Young was brought in and by major league baseball, um, you know, it, I, I thought that he might be that guy. But then by the time he left to go to the Rangers, I think that his, you know, he was viewed on the player side with suspicion, which I don't get, but that's the way it was. Jabron Lames at Stone King 97 from School of Sweats. The Major League Base should Major League Baseball impose PED penalties to that of the CrossFit Games first offense as a four-year ban. It would be over for sure, and Bonds should be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. And, and if you're talking about PD penalties, I'm, I'm assuming you're referring to the Hall of Fame voting. Is that to your read on it, too, Taylor? Uh, or is he talking yeah. about an actual four year ban from competition? I think it's a four year ban from competition. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, it's pretty clear that a lot of players and I'm thinking of Melky Cabrera, uh, for example, made the decision that, you know what, I- I'm going to go. Ryan Braun made this decision. If I get caught, you know what? I got a huge contract and I'm fine. That crime still pays based on the rules. Last one for today, Will Walker at WillWalk underscore 10 writes in, I know your son is mind boggled by the Braves not signing Freddie before the lockout. Same here. Why didn't the deal get done? The six year seems to be the problem. Why don't the Braves want to give him that six year for a franchise player? No, I agree uh, to, to what it feels like a rhetorical question. I think the Braves needed to get this done. I think they're being cheap. Mm, tough look for the Braves. Hopefully they can get it done for Jake's sake. Hashtag Bleacher Tweets on Twitter. Keep firing them off, please. As uh, I guess we'll get we'll do another show next week. I mean, uh, you know, yep. not enough, not a ton to talk about. But, uh, you know, I thought today's show uh, turned out pretty well. Yeah, I've got a lot of storytelling in the back of my mind. And I'll tell you about that off air. Uh, All right. That's it for today. My thanks to Sarah, to Tim, to Jim and to Taylor. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day. 
Thanks for listening to the Baseball Tonight podcast. If you're playing fantasy baseball, check out the Fantasy Focus podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. The Baseball Tonight podcast. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply.